All right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining uh, the next session here as we focus on energy markets. And, uh, you know, this conversation is about markets versus mandates. And I think that uh, my two distinguished <coughs> guests here will be able to offer a great deal to think about as we engage in this conversation. My name is Neil Chatterjee. Uh, it's an honor to be here today uh, with such a distinguished group at such a uh, prestigious institution. I had the good fortune of serving as both a commissioner and chairman of the United States Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. Uh, for those of you who don't follow it that closely, FERC is the government agency that uh, has the responsibility of overseeing the country's competitive wholesale electricity power markets. It is also uh, the nation's reliability regulator. My foremost obligation during my tenure as chair was to ensure that when Americans hit the switch, the lights come on. And uh, in doing so, uh, we were confronted with a lot of exciting opportunities and obstacles presented by the energy transition. I think in many ways I had a front row seat to the transition in my role at FERC. And what we saw were some of the challenges, opportunities, and obstacles that arose from the energy transition, and uh, my, my colleagues are going to dig into that in some degree. Um, from my vantage point, what I saw was uh, policy start to play a significant role in our goal towards decarbonization, but also with a focus on reliability. And as decisions started to be made by political actors and less so engineers and economists that had an impact on reliability and the efficient functioning of markets. In my role at FERC, we had to balance complex markets, for instance, in the mid-Atlantic, you've got 13 states in the District of Columbia. What works for the power mix in West Virginia and Kentucky is very different than what the needs are in New Jersey and Maryland. And trying to balance those policy objectives with the efficient functioning of the market was something that we wrestled with. Um, when it comes to reliability, as I mentioned, what we saw was political pressure was leading to uh, decisions around resource adequacy in the generation mix. And in some instances, we found that certain sources of generation that were necessary for reliability were prematurely retired before their balancing resources were ready to be deployed. And that led, uh, in uh, uh, some situations, to uh, curtailments and, and blackouts and brownouts. And finally, we had to confront with the realities of climate change, that climate change and extreme weather was going to continue to test grids. And what we saw during my tenure at FERC was both Texas, uh, a conservative state, and California, a more progressive one. Both grids were pushed to the brink because climate change and extreme weather doesn't care what your political affiliation is. And it really poses some interesting questions on how we are going to combat climate change, and in order to do so, that will mean increased dependence on weather-dependent resources. How we do that while maintaining reliability and affordability uh, is a real challenge, and um, uh, I've enjoyed the discussion so far to date because uh, a couple of questioners and commenters have mentioned that we need to take the emotions out of the conversation. We need to take the politics out of the conversation and focus on some of the very real questions that are emanating from this transition. 
transition. And so um, we're going to start off with a presentation from Mark Mills, um, who's going to talk a little bit about his perspective and give us the view. Uh, I, I, and I don't want to misquote you here, but I believe you describe as giving the physicist's <laughs> viewpoint of uh, the energy transition. Uh, and then we're going to uh, pivot to, to David Victor, who's going to take a look at sort of the landscape, uh, how he sees the transition going, and potentially laying out who some of the winners and losers in the transition may be. Um, and so, as I stated at the onset, this is a really exciting time to be in the policy and regulatory and thought space uh, as, we, as we face the energy transition. And I'm looking forward to a great discussion. And we'll, uh, we'll start it with the physicist's perspective. <laughs> well, you notice that Neil and I are both wearing a tie, which would tell you that we're from the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> Fair. Hey, I'm wearing shoes, which means I'm it's dressed true, up in it's California. True. I, I know. I was going to say, with the flip-flops, I was looking for flip-flops. I tried to balance it with the sneakers. A little tie-dye thing from the surf. I know. Anyway. Uh, first, I, I, I should explain that I guess once a physicist, always a physicist. I don't, I don't do useful things anymore in the sense what I used to do when you built and invent things. But let me explain the title because the word delusion just is not an invective. It's there because it has semantic meaning. If you believe something that's the evidence uh, before you is contrary to what this, you believe, that's normally defined semantically as a delusion. And that point of that is that the narrative that we're in the middle of an accelerating energy transition is not evident in the facts. And, and that's easy to illustrate, which I'll do briefly. And the, the bigger question is whether or not one as defined as it's being defined, a rapid transition away from hydrocarbons, is even possible, which is what I'll, which is what I'll focus on with uh, a few facts. And the, the subtitle, The Physics of Money, is uh, as an acknowledgment that I'm inverting the order of how things are being talked about here. Uh, this is really about markets and mandates. So economists, I think if I, we took a poll, there's probably more economists in the room uh, and those of that similar uh, disciplines than there are physicists. I did hear from a, a couple of engineers. So, uh, in, in my view, uh, in my work, I, I begin with the physics of what's possible, and therefore the engineering of what's possible. And the economic features are derivative from that. And that's how I see the world. Economists invert that. They uh, look at money, and then they see incentives they can provide to cause the physicists and engineers to behave. Fair, fair enough. But, but in, in point of fact, it's a dynamic reality of the interaction between money and innovation and physics and engineering. But, but the reality that physics matters, that is the underlying nature of energy systems, especially when you talk about energy, and it's what will determine whether or not my title is valid, delusion, or, or more kindly, an aspiration rather than a practicality, derives from looking at things that are very fundamental. I'll give you an example by way of analogy, recognizing that analogies, analogies have all the flaws that analogies have. But uh, the moonshot is used all the time in Washington. It's used all the time in rhetoric is the way we're going to solve a problem. The moonshot for this, the moonshot for that. It's, 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 uh, it's an epidemic overuse of the Apollo program. Uh, and it inspires people because they look at what engineers did. And, and there were scientists involved. They put a dozen men on the moon. Now, we're going to put some women on the moon this time, too. But we put a dozen men on the moon once. The fact that all of humanity is not now living on the moon is not a market failure. <laughs> 
Okay. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> it ain't a market failure. Uh, the, the physics of what it takes to get out of gravity wells and the engineering we know that we can build make it impossible. And I use that analogy f for a reason. Uh, engineering stunts impress people. Uh, the energy systems of the world and of the United States uh, more specifically are huge systems. Changing them is equivalent to putting all of humanity on the moon. Doing stunts, making some hydrogen, flying an electric airplane, whatever the stunt is. Uh, lots of stunts can be done at scale and you can spend money on them. But no amount of market incentives will change the underlying physics of the systems that we know, that we know how to build. And uh, so I'm going to talk about supply because the whole motivation in the energy transition is about supply, how we supply energy to the world. I, well, I do want to make a comment about demand because it really picks off of something that Matt Ridley, Lord Ridley, sorry, Matt, the, the uh, question that, uh, in terms of the rebound effect, which has to do with the, the failure of most forecasters, which typically are economists, to uh, accommodate potential for demands that we don't know about. Let me just put it in this way, and this is again from an innovator. I used to invent things and have patents. But from the perspective of somebody that builds things, uh, I will state as a matter of fact, engineers and innovators have over all history invented more ways to use energy than to produce it. We're really good at finding ways to use energy. So to believe that energy demands of the future are forecastable and are going to look roughly like they are today, that we can create market incentives to create efficiencies and yada yada, presumes that there will be no new foundational inventions that will consume energy. Before the invention of the car, no demand for fuel for cars. Before the invention of the airplane, obviously no demand for fuel for airplanes. Before the invention of the computer and now the cloud, no demand for energy for those. All three of those domains, by the way, including computing, use roughly the same quantity of global energy, about 10 million barrels of oil equivalent. The global cloud, your smartphones that we like to brag about, use uh, at, at the aggregate level globally twice as much electricity as the country of Japan. So it's a, it, the, the consequence of new invention and the belief that there won't be foundational new inventions that create demand is missing entirely from all these, these considerations. So, but anyway, let's look at supply as it exists today. I'm going to give you 12 facts quickly as a calibration for why uh, the claim that we can achieve a rapid energy transition away from hydrocarbons is a claim not anchored in the physics of energy and the economics of systems that are possible. And I'll think about them mostly in economic terms because this is, I mean, because we're talking about economics of markets. The elephant in the room is the obvious one. Many of you may know this. I've been studying in, uh, this issue for a long time. I used to work for a mining company eons ago in Canada. But the, this is IEA data simplified, it distills to a, a very specific fact. Uh, if you build wind, solar, or battery machines instead of hydrocarbon combustion machines, you have to build machines in all cases. Whether the energy source is renewable or not is immaterial and irrelevant. Machines wear out, they have entropy. All energy sources require machine construction. What you'd want to know is the quantity of minerals, materials you need to build a machine to produce energy to deliver a useful service. What we get in, in the reality of the physics of the world we live in is about a thousand percent increase on average in the consumption of mineral, basic minerals to produce an energy machine if it's wind, solar, or battery related versus a hydrocarbon related one. This is in terms of power, which of course is misleading. As all of you know, uh, the wind solar machines operate episodically. To deliver the same quantity of energy, you have to roughly triple this. So the average number 
in terms of increase in demand and call on metals per unit of energy delivered to society, a mile of driving, a mile of heat of this building, hour of compute time, rises from, depending on the technology, from 500% to 7,000% more minerals, a whole suite of minerals from copper and nickel to the obvious lithium, cobalt, manganese, zinc, whole, including very common minerals like, like a copper. And if you translate that into the call on world's minerals, the increase in production from the world's mines, and this is an IEA graph looking at only five classes of minerals. You can look at this, and the graph looks the same for the dozen plus class of minerals you need. The call on increase of, of production from the world's mining sector ranges from 700% to a 4,000% increase in production of minerals from the world's mining sector. The, uh, that level of increase in supply of global minerals has never happened in history in the time frames imagined. We have increased the production of minerals over human history, but this is being imagined for the next decade or two. It has never happened before. Uh, I would take the bet it's not going to happen this time, uh, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a qualitative bet, not a factual bet. As a calibration point, as a, you know, why haven't we seen this effect yet? We have, as I'll show you in a moment. The reason we haven't really seen the effect yet is because, <laughs> to my earlier point, there's really no energy transition yet. The global amount of energy supplied by wind and solar combined, all of you, I'm sure, know this, is about 3% of world's energy. Uh, this is after 20 years and about $5 trillion of spending globally. The number's probably bigger than that, but that's roughly the number to avoid hydrocarbons. Uh, global energy from wood is still three times greater than global energy from wind and solar combined. But the world is spending a lot of money now to try to accelerate this. And we are going, I have no doubt we're going to spend the money and accelerate, not least in the United States. The Infrastructure uh, uh, Act and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act have allocated jointly about a trillion dollars in the United States to building essentially wind, solar, and batteries, electric cars. And it will, if, if the uh, estimates are correct, reduce U.S. CO2 emissions, which is its purpose, by about a gigaton, which is this graph from EIA showing the reference case, as you heard earlier, referred to the fact that U.S. emissions have been going down. Uh, Two-thirds of that decrease, closer to 70%, came from the coal to gas switch from fracking. The other third was, was uh, wind, solar, and, and, uh, and uh, ethanol, corn, corn alcohol. The reference case here for China, it actually understates future China emissions because it ignores what they're doing with coal plants today. But the, the point is, we're going to spend a trillion dollars to make the yellow bar happen. This is what's happening in China. If you added East Asia to this, you see, uh, you see that our trillion dollars won't have a material impact on global carbon dioxide emissions. And more importantly, uh, at the same time that Congress is incentivizing reshoring and manufacturing, if the United States is able to restore manufacturing to its share that it enjoyed in the year 2000, it will wipe out all of those carbon dioxide emissions reductions in the United States. Nonetheless, we're going we're we're to we're be doing this. The world's doing it. The International Energy Agency is endorsing it. Countries everywhere I recognize have mandates to ban internal combustion engines. And keep in mind that every, any, every electric vehicle uses roughly four to five hundred percent more copper, three hundred percent more aluminum uh, than uh, a conventional car. Obviously, a lot more cobalt and, and lithium and uh, manganese and other chemicals for the batteries. So. 
the question would be, where do we get the minerals? Uh, the IEA has pointed out correctly, hundreds of new mines will be required, uh, entailing somewhere between $500 billion and a trillion dollars of capital expenditure on the mines, not counting the refineries. What IEA data shows is that the world demand for copper, based on the Paris Accord, not the aspiration for a transition, is the red line. And the actual production of global copper is the dark blue line. The light blue line is total commitments and announcements and plans to produce copper. What you see from this graph, and you can see an identical graph for 10 other minerals, is that within about a year or two, the world will be short the supply of all those minerals. What the world is doing at the moment with respect to providing new supplies is the graph on the right, which is total global capex in that, those mining sectors. You can see it's trending down. This is just the 2026. If you extend this graph out to 2030, the line collapses. That is, the global mining industry is investing roughly 10% of what's required to meet the metals demands of the Paris Accord. So as the markets, and of course you guys, most of you, many of you are economists, if markets chase commodities that uh, the supply is constrained, we know what the effect of that is. It causes prices to go up. And so what we have, uh, you can track this for any combination of metals you want. Uh, what we have is over the last five to 10 years, the average cost of many of these metals is now up about two to 300% in real terms. There was a short uh, spike in iron ore prices, which is the top one you hear, see here, which is essentially irrelevant. In, in the long run, iron ore is important for windmills and solar arrays, but it's not the, it's not the long pole in the tent. The price of cobalt, lithium, platinum, all the metals uh, are been trending up, and they've been trending up for the last 10 or 15 years as the world has accelerated construction and demand for these metals, for electric cars, for wind turbines, and for uh, solar arrays, and the. Uh, effect of this in an economist term would be to say, well, okay, the market prices will rise. That will cause more mines to be opened. Markets will respond. Of course they'll respond. Uh, the question you'd want to know if you're in this business is how long do the markets take to respond? How quickly can mines be opened? What's the velocity of supply? The IEA points out the average time to open a new mine from exploration is 16 years. In the United States, for most miners, it's infinite, not 16 years. Three mines uh, with permits that were uh, in place uh, of, of several million dollars of spending in, in, in nickel and copper domains in Minnesota and uh, New Mexico had their permits revoked last year by the administration and by EPA. And of course, you probably read that the, uh, the administration has just put a, a vast area of Minnesota, which is rich in copper and nickel, and if it's rich in copper, it's rich in cobalt, off limits uh, indefinitely for exploration. So economists at the IMF uh, published a paper a year and a half ago that got almost no attention. They looked at the inflationary pressure on global metals from the transition, that if the world were to call on metals to the extent required for the IEA plans, what would the impact be on metals recognizing the markets will respond, mines will get built, but they looked at a dynamic model. They have very good models on metal pricing because we know a lot about metals. It's the oldest industry in human race. We've been mining since before written history. A lot of data on it. I show you just the copper one. The pink zone is the, the range of copper price increases going out to 2040. Uh, the upper range is the transition price impact. What they concluded, which I thought was a consequential conclusion, that the IEA transition policies will cause metal prices to reach historical peaks and for unprecedented length of time of a decade. Uh, 
metal prices don't really matter to most people, most economists. They ignore them because for one century, the average price of metals was declining by, by 1% a year as the world's demands for metals rose. That ended uh, roughly around the year 2000 and has been rising since. It's not a coincidence that it ended with the massive uh, expansion in the uh, wind and solar domains in Europe and now in the United States. So we could look at a microeconomic one, just out of curiosity. This is the bill of materials to go into electric vehicle. You can see that the cost of the bill of materials doubled since 2020. The war effect on steel uh, ended quickly. So the uh, this is not labor. This is this is this is not uh, the power electronics. This is just a raw material cost to build an electric vehicle. Uh, you probably have a question in your mind: What is the number for conventional vehicle. It's less than half that. Just this. And the suite of metals that are in there are smaller and their price increases lower. So you have a $2,000 bill of materials for a conventional vehicle, which has risen to 3000 This price spread, even before you start making the battery, tells you a lot about the future direction of electric vehicle pricing. Or more broadly, the future pricing of wind, solar, and batteries has been trending up for two years. Will go up this went up last year. It's going to go up again next year, almost entirely on the backs not of supply chain disruption. This began, as you can see from this normalized curve before the COVID lockdowns. It, it's it happening because of the cost of the bill of materials. Seventy percent of the cost to make a lithium-ion batteries and the cost of the materials. Eighty percent of the cost to make a solar module is the cost of the materials. Thirty percent of the cost to make a wind turbine is the cost of the materials. Put differently, the future price of the energy transition machines is now determined by mining. Not by, not by the technology of Silicon Valley anymore, and not by the technology of, of solar innovators, but by the miners. The future, uh, one of the two other quick uh, roadmaps for the future that are sort of anchored in the geophysics and geology of the world we live in, the future costs of minerals are anchored in something you could call the iron law of declining ore grades. Every single mineral of every class on the planet is experiencing declining ore grades and has been for decades, if not centuries. Ore grade is the percentage of the rock that's the mineral you want. The average ore grade for copper around the world is 1%. So you, that means the obvious. You want a, a pound, if you want a pound of copper, you have to mine 100 pounds of ore plus the pounds of overburden. The ore grade decline means that the costs to get the metals go up. It also means that the hidden, we'll call it leakage of carbon dioxide, goes up because the mining industry today is 40% of global energy use. And the, quantity of energy used by mining will not only go up as ore grades decline, but also as the demand for the metals goes up as they are used to replace hydrocarbons. This, this will translate into higher costs. The claim that solar and wind are cheap uh, and a rich grid parity is factually incorrect because the spontaneous costs of a power plant are irrelevant on grids. What matters is how you keep the lights on, as Niels pointed out. When you look at the costs to keep lights on, and which is the red bar uh, and the blue bar are the spontaneous costs of the machine when it's running, you find that wind and solar and batteries are typically uh, more expensive than conventional power plants. You can only get a higher price for conventional power plants if you attach an imputed fu future cost from uh, carbon dioxide. 
which one is allowed to do as an economist. But as an economic matter in the present, it means electricity is more expensive. Germany has done the experiment that we're, we're, mar we're, we're marching towards now. They've spent roughly a trillion dollars in Germany to do what the current plan is, which is essentially to double the size of our electric grid. Well, I say that that's not because electric demand is doubling. Germany's electricity demand in the last 20 years went up 10%. But they doubled the size of their grid. They still have almost exactly the same size of original hydrocarbon-based grid as they did uh, 20 years ago. So they have a grid twice as big that produces 10% uh, more electricity. You should not be surprised that it's resulted in electric rates roughly doubling in Germany over that time period. And they have displaced only 6% of their primary energy uh, from, from hydrocarbons. That it, the, the cost experiment in Europe, this is uh, EU data, uh, shows unequivocally that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between increased penetration of wind and solar on grids and higher residential rates. Keep in mind that this is, you would think this wouldn't show up because of the subsidies. Right? This, this does not show subsidies. It accommodates subsidies. Subsidies are hidden in the taxes. This is the actual cost to run the grids. As you add wind and solar, the cost to run grids rises because they're episodic power sources. That results in higher overall electric rates. This is not a higher electric rate because the windmills were more expensive. The windmills were subsidized, so they were actually cheaper than a conventional power. The experiment's been done in a lot of US utilities. This is Excel service territory. In the Midwest, they have 4 million customers. In the last uh, 20 years, they've increased the share of the capacity on their grid that's wind and solar from 5% on track to make it 40%. And it's resulted in a 300% increase in the average residential electric rate in the service territory. Remember, these customers have been told we're adding wind and solar not just because we're helping climate change, but because it's cheaper. And this is not what's happened. Last slide I'll, I'll leave you with is uh, a macroeconomic one based on the physics of energy and the, and, the, and the geophysics of the planet we live on. The imagined all solar wind grid with the super grid so that when it's always sunny somewhere, it's always windy somewhere, we can share the power. That, that, that scenario can be modeled and has been modeled on a supercomputer, looking at different ratios of uh, sun and wind being 50-50, 70-30, 30-70, and modeling it over 30 years of meteorological data to answer the question, if you had an all wind and solar grid with the perfect transmission system to share wind and sun whenever it was available, what, what would it mean in terms of power outages over the three decades that you build grids for? And how much storage would you need to avoid the power outages? Because we know as a, math, as a historic fact that continent-wide <coughs> cloud cover occurs frequently but unpredictably, which means no light. And continent-wide wind droughts also occur frequently but unpredictably. And over 30 years, they happen dozens of times. What this data shows to reduce it is that if you wanted an all wind and solar grid, setting aside the minerals are not in fact available, but if you were to build it, you'd have to build it five times bigger than today's grid to achieve a reliability that's the, the standard that Neil ran of 99.99%, that's one national blackout per 30 years. You have to have the grid five times as big, and you still need four days of batteries, which is $15 trillion of batteries at today's battery prices, not the price that they would cost in trying to build that many batteries. That physical, geophysical reality using the machines that exist today isn't achievable. It won't happen. And so that tells you a bit why I put the provocative word delusion in the title, because we aren't going to build that, because we can't afford that, and it won't work, and markets won't tolerate it. 
Thank you very much, Mark. And before we pivot to David real quick, I did want to follow up on this because a lot of what you've laid out is clearly the challenges to achieving this transition, but the, the goals that um, you are ascribing these challenges to are largely set by mandates. This is markets versus mandates. It's government policy. It's consumer demand that's sort of driving this. Because let's be clear, it's not just governments that are setting these targets and timelines and mm -hmm. striving to decarbonize. Consumers, young people in particular, are clamoring for this. So a lot of what you lay out and, and the obstacles to that, um, it seems to come from a place of logistics, supply chain, and affordability. My question is, and because I have become concerned that in our zeal to decarbonize, we're taking our eyes off of some of these realities and are, are missing the vulnerabilities to reliability and energy security. Instead of a hodgepodge of policies that are sort of forcing us to confront the realities that you lay out, why not something simple and transparent? We are here at the Hoover Institute where former secretary uh, the late Secretary Schultz was a big proponent of a carbon fee and dividend approach, a belief being that a lot of these questions get answered if you simply price the externality that everything else will fall into place. What are your views? Because it keeps coming up. It's, it's, it's a constant source of discussion. Has been for a decade plus, but we get nowhere with it. Remove the politics around a price on carbon completely because obviously that's onerous. In your view, as a physicist, could a price on carbon alleviate a lot of the concerns that you are raising here? No. Um, <laughs> I want to take your time, so I'll just say it this way. The, the economists argue that the price on carbon will create incentives to do other things. What I'm trying to illustrate, what all my research and writing is on, is that the other things can't happen. So what the carbon tax and prices will do is raise the cost of energy or reduce its reliability or both. But you, you cannot, the incentives would be the equivalent of saying, I'll give you more money if you go to live on the moon. We're not going to be living on the moon, not, not, not in the lifetimes we can imagine with the engineering we can, we can use. So the incentives assume there's a market failure to transition to a lot more wind and solar and electric vehicles. It's not a market failure. It's not going to happen because the world is not going to mine enough copper to make that many electric cars. So the, the mandates to ban internal combustion engines will result in one of two things. Uh, a, a, a record market for used cars with internal combustion engines, or the mandates get canceled because the copper won't be available. Just the copper, never mind cobalt or lithium. So the market argument assumes there's a failure because the failure is that, but for evil Exxon, we'd be driving more battery-powered cars. That, that's a, uh, you know, a, a trope that's silly, frankly. Anyway. David, your perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I can sell you another minute or two if you want the price to come down. <laughs> <laughs> the market solution. <laughs> um, it's terrific to be here, terrific to be here in the shadow of George Schultz uh, when I was here at Stanford, a phenomenal mentor and a great American, really great American. So it's fabulous to be back here. Um, I read uh, the session title, Adding Economics to Energy Engineering. I had actually no idea what that meant. So then I read the description, and I think what they're asking us to talk a little bit 
bit about is what's actually going to happen and, and who might win and lose in this. And I'm a political scientist uh, by training, which I think is the actual dismal science. I think economics is about trade-offs, and political science is about why, in facing trade-offs, people consistently do the wrong thing. So exactly. I think we've occupied that, um, that, that bottom rung. Um, I want to just say four things. I had intended to say three things, but we're in inflationary time, so I'm going to talk about four things. I want to talk about the fragmentation of policy action, which I think we can understand from a political point of view, and also maybe from a market design and policy design point of view. I want to talk about the intensity, capital intensity of what we're talking about here. I want to, I want to have a, a defense of globalization, since it's so unpopular these days. And then I want to talk about progress, because I think we're actually making a lot of progress, and we have set ourselves up to consistently tell everybody how we're failing, when in fact we're, I think, succeeding. I don't know if it's delusional to talk about a rapid <laughs> energy transition, partly to paraphrase Bill Clinton in a different context. I don't know what is meant by rapid energy and transition, but we're actually making some quite a lot of progress when you take a, uh, a look at this historically. So the first of the four things is I want to talk about fragmented policy action. If we were here 30 years ago, there would have been endless talks about the need for a global carbon tax, a global solution, grand bargains, and so on. There's very little of that these days for, for understandable reasons. And instead, what's happened, for better or for worse, is um, that we're seeing fragmented policy, real policy action is happening in very fragmented ways with all kinds of dangers that, that, are, that this audience knows very well. So let me talk about three flavors of fragmentation that I think are defining the landscape right now. One flavor of fragmentation is by technology type. So this is from a study that was released a few years ago that was part of the set piece for how the British government hosted COP26, where they, in addition to doing all the diplomacy, which is, you know, you kind of get to watch everybody negotiate over commas in the middle of the night and think that they're excited about that, mostly a waste of time, they brought together leaders from a few industries to change facts on the ground. And the, the theory behind this is that in our classic S-shaped curve, where new technologies come in, they started small markets, they diffuse more widely into into service, the different technologies or the different industries that are relevant for emissions are at different stages. So if you look at this chart, electric power is much further along. There's a lot of mature technologies. Um, there's some important questions about materials availability and prices and getting the markets right, uh, something that warms uh, Neil's heart, getting markets right for reliability and, and uh, not just bulk, uh, bulk electrons. But you can imagine market instruments really working and helping optimize, helping firms optimize amongst known choices. But way on the left side, steel. There is no carbon price in this planet that by itself will induce the right kind of innovation for clean steel. Right. But there's a lot that you can do with other kinds of market instruments like assured demand and so on. And indeed, that's what's happening. That's happening with the Swedish program, with a variety of other programs. Um, aviation. My lab does a lot of work on aviation. Um, in aviation, it's a reminder that you really need to get the, market, the, the policy signals right. There's an obsession right now in the aviation business with sustainable aviation fuels, with carbon offsets, ideally the lowest quality offsets possible because they're the cheapest, never mind that they don't actually reduce emissions. It's the kinds of warnings that Buzz Thompson and other gave, others gave us in the previous panel are really important. All that's great, but that presumes that the problem in aviation is carbon. And there's growing evidence that actually the bigger 
problem in aviation is contrail cirrus and the effect that contrails have. And so then you need a different kind of solution. And maybe there's a market strategy for contrails. Maybe there's more of a regulatory strategy that you could design in intelligent ways. And so every single one of these segments of the economy has a different cluster of policy instruments, in part because of where they are along the S-shaped curve and in part because of industrial organization. The second, second flavor of fragmentation that we're seeing is with pollution, the different kinds of pollutants. This is from a paper that a group of us put in Nature Climate Change a few years ago where we asked ourselves the question, what's, who should be in the club if you wanted to get a few countries together to really work on different pollutants that cause global warming? Who should be in the club? What's the optimal club design? And what's really interesting is your club design depends on the pollutant. Carbon dioxide requires generally big clubs because it's a globally mixed pollutant, long live pollutant. Whereas uh, methane requires actually smaller clubs because the pollutant is much more powerful, the lifetimes are shorter, and methane causes local harm as well. And so if you get the right members of the club, it's, it's self-enforcing. The, the deal that you have between different countries is self-enforcing. What we show in this chart in the upper right-hand corner is the number of countries as you move along the left-hand axis. At what kind of configuration of clubs do you get 100% of the benefits from an optimal strategy for controlling methane? And you need kind of eight, nine countries, and you, you do pretty well. Uh, soot, which is a huge contributor to climate change, but also kills people, a lot of people, and has a very short atmospheric lifetime. The number of countries you need to have in a, in a, in a global arrangement around soot is very small because there's a limited number of countries, and they have a self-interest in doing something about it. So the, the second fragmentation we see, and we've seen this very much in the, in the Kigali amendments around the Montreal Protocol, is different pollutants require different kinds of political uh, configurations. And the third and last flavor of fragmentation I'm going to talk about today is inside this country by geography, by state. You'd think it would be the worst possible idea on the planet to have every state run off and do its own climate change policy, which I guess is more or less what we're doing. So uh, the competition for worst idea is an intense one. There are going to be many medalists, but that seems like that idea would be on the podium. So a group of us took one of these big energy models and went off and said, asked the question, how bad is it if you have the blue states go do you know, blue state stuff and the red states you know, don't? How bad is that? And within some limits, it's actually not so bad for quite a lot yeah. of, of time. You can have huge fragmentation in, in sub-national policy responses without much increase in to total cost to the economy, you know, up to a point. And you have to make sure that there are no big states that, that do nothing whatsoever. And we've spent a lot of time, as you can imagine, <laughs> doing the sensitivity on that, because that's a perpetual employment program for academics. But the key point here is that if you have trade in electricity, and refined products in the, in the market, in the, in the country, then you can achieve a lot of the benefits of a nationwide approach with a subnational approach. So that's something that political scientists understand because what you're seeing is a huge variation in political willingness to do something about the problem. And that variation actually may not be as much of a cost to the economy as we thought. Um, a group of us, uh, David Fedor sitting back there, was, yeah, they're sitting right there, was the ringleader on this. Tom Stevenson played a central role in this. A group of us uh, uh, connected to Hoover Put, put out a paper a few months ago saying, given this reality, what 
do you re what's the unmet agenda in the in the power grid? Siting of new power lines, kinds of things that, that Neil worked with had worked on at FERC, and that here's a picture of that paper. And it's just a reminder that, in particular, if you can get the major energy carriers, refined products, and electricity working properly, that a lot of the other distortions in the economy are really uh, second order, at least up to a point. The second of the four things I want to talk about is capital intensity. This is a huge subject, and so I really want to just draw out a couple of, of points here. Uh, an economy that decarbonizes is an economy that electrifies. Almost every energy model comes to that conclusion. But the other thing that's very interesting to me in those models is an economy that decarbonizes is an economy that capitalizes. The energy business today is extremely capital intensive, and you ain't seen nothing yet. The energy business that's clean, especially if you do renewables and so on, is a very, very capital intensive economy. Why does that matter? That matters in part because a lot of the debates we're having right now about inequality in the global economy quite plausibly actually get worse, require much more attention in a world where you have 100, 200, 500,000 basis point differences between countries. And when you plug all that into a model, we've done it, we've run the numbers, when you plug that into a model, the models solve in really different ways. They move capital to the places that might have higher costs at the margin, but have radically lower costs of, of, of borrowing and deploying capital. The other reason it matters is because whenever you're in a capital intensive industry, credibility matters. Because credibility, policy credibility is a way of sending signals to the markets. This is where things are headed. This is what you should invest in. Here's why you should have confidence in your capacity to amortize that investment over a long time horizon and so on. So a group of us are, have been, um, one of my um, pandemic ho hobbies was we did a big survey of people involved in international diplomacy on climate change. And we had the highest response rate of any elite survey I've ever run in my life, where you send it to people highly experienced. Normally, they just delete the email because they're busy doing stuff, like real stuff. But by luck, we sent it out right in the beginning of the pandemic, and everyone was in their pajamas at home, and so they took the survey. So we have a huge response rate on this. This is the first in a series of three or four papers came out in Nature Climate Change. And one of the things we did in this study is we asked all these experts, people who were in the room when key climate policy and diplomacy decisions were made, we asked them to evaluate the credibility of all the, of the pledges that other countries were making around the world. And while it's a complicated story, one thing is very clear is that the credibility of the United States government has gone down enormously. And on this topic, the credibility of the European Union, for better or for worse, is much higher. Why does that matter? Because it, we expect to see a pretty significant variation in the capacity to induce efficient long-term investments that is rooted in the credibility of the policy signals that are coming out of leading capitals. And I think that's something, if you take seriously the capital intensity argument, it's something that we as analysts need to take seriously and we as policy advocates need to take seriously. We need to do more work with tying hands and other mechanisms that are conventionally used to signal greater credibility of, of, of policy directions. Um, let me just mention that a group of us are now uh, taking these ideas and plugging them into the big energy models. I wanted to find some way to add economics to energy engineering, so here's my one slide in an effort to kind of deliver what I was asked to do. Well, one of the things that's interesting to do is to say to yourself, there are lots of things you can do to an energy model to add realism to it, uh, but you have to pay attention to strategy. And on the horizontal axis is the ease of adding 
reality to one of these big energy models. And the vertical axis is the value of doing that. So there's a whole bunch of things that are on the left-hand side really easy to do that are frankly worthless. And there's a whole bunch of things that are, that are um, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, in the upper right-hand, uh, lower right-hand corner. And there's a whole bunch of things that are really hard to do but are really valuable. And so I think we as. See something? Yeah, we're going to see something in just a moment. I'm just one. <laughs> I'm just checking to see whether you were awake or yeah, not. Yeah, this is a test. And yeah, you've yeah. passed the test. It's a good test. And so, and what we've tried to do is we've worked with a. We have a bunch of energy modelers and a bunch of political scientists, and we're getting the political scientists to help us understand what are some things that we could do a better job of representing in the energy models that would add real value. And one, the issue that's in front of us today, this markets versus mandates, or I'll call it the design of policy instruments, is one of those areas where we have ways of, in reduced form, doing a better job of, of looking beyond just adding carbon taxes to models. And the standard way of modeling these things is, to, is you tell the model, assume $100 a ton carbon tax. Why do we use that the standard way? Because it's the easiest thing to implement in the models. The problem is that no government on the planet is doing that. And so the entire modeling world is living in its own kind of rarefied atmosphere that's producing outcomes that have very little relationship to reality. And we've We've got to be attentive to that as we interpret the results from the existing models, as we think about as analysts, how do we do a better job? Uh, two more things, and then I'll and, and then I'll close. Um, I want to make a case for globalization. Um, I think we have we're drinking a little too much of the political Kool-Aid right now. We've seen, I was in Davos 10 days ago, and there was all this enthusiasm about the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the Europeans had to be counter-enthusiastic for the European version of the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the Japanese are no doubt going to be, have to be counter-enthusiastic to the European and to the American version and so on. And a big part of that, Joe Manchin was the most popular guy in, in Davos, I think even more popular than Zelensky uh, this, this, this time around. And I think a big part of the politics of this, frankly, is protectionism. It's called green protectionism, or just call it protectionism. And I understand why that's the case politically, but we have to be really, really careful. And I think this is one of the things that this institution here, which for so long has been focused on the value of markets and uh, liberty and uh, thinking globally, uh, maybe can play a big role in helping, in, in helping to address. Um, uh, example, Greg Nemeth has this amazing book called How Solar Became Cheap. And solar became cheap in part because we and the Japanese started spending a bunch of money on subsidies here. And then uh, it moved to Germany. Uh, Mark showed us there. And we want to thank all German ratepayers for your enormous contribution to bringing down the cost of solar, even though the deal that was originally made, which was that it was going to create German industry, that deal uh, existed for a few years. And then suddenly, the Chinese discovered they could manufacture much more cheaply. And then the frontier of manufacturing and technology moved to China. Moved to China. And that's why solar at the margin in many settings is so inexpensive. It's why the example we were talking about earlier uh, with regard to phasing out coal, you can link that in a reasonably cost-effective way to a deal with renewables that makes the coal phase out self-sustaining politically because the solar technology is cheaper. And you like solar or not like solar and so on. But here's the point. It became cheap and it remains relatively 
really cheap because of the value of being able to speak to and to innovate and deliver across a global market. The same is going to be true for hydrogen electrolyzers. It's going to be it's true already for batteries. It requires us to think about mineral supply in a global way. The more we fragment those supply chains and require specific flags, you know, an American flag or a Minnesota flag or just a local flag to be put on that supply chain, the more fragmented, costly, and insecure those markets are going to be. So I really urge us to not drink too much of the green energy nationalism Kool-Aid. And um, uh, I'm going to skip over this here and just say one more thing at the end here. It doesn't look like we're making progress. I think we're actually making amazing progress. And the reason we don't think we're making progress is because my friends and colleagues in the IPCC, and I spent five years as a convening lead author and the not the last one, but the previous one. So I kind of remember, and I'm trying to forget what the experience was like of kind of going from city to city around the world to have meetings for no obvious purpose. But one of the things that we've been doing in the IPCC that has been a massive disservice is we have been running model run after model run after model run to show people what's needed to reach goals that are totally unachievable. So I'll, I'll pull, put up my, one of my favorite recent uh, charts, which is what do you need to do for emissions to stop warming at 1.5 degrees? Two degrees is written to the Paris Agreement, then suddenly became 1.5 degrees. Um, uh, and people have forgotten that these goals are easy to set because they're collective goals with no accountability. So you know, sign me up. I'm, I would like to suspend the laws of gravity. I think I'll feel much lighter as a result of that. I might be able to live on the moon. Good. A variety of other things that could be really beneficial. But this is just crazy talk. We are not going to stop warming at 1.5 degrees. We are not going to stop warming at 2 degrees. Correct. And the curves, if you look at the historical data, the black line, what you need, these are emission reductions that, are, that aren't going to happen in the real world. But what's really interesting in my mind is that 15 years ago, the world was on track for 4 or 5 degrees C of warming over this century above pre-industrial levels. Right now, we're on track for maybe 2.5 degrees C of warming. 2.5 is still a lot of warming. There's going to be a lot of adaptation. So the adaptation panel that met earlier, you're not out of business. So just don't worry about that. Don't protect yourself with regulation. You're going to do fine. Um, but 2.5 is not 5. It's, it's really extraordinary. And we're making progress for a lot of different reasons. Some of them are policy. A lot of it's technology. A lot of it's global markets. Uh, and if you want to read more about the messages that I've been laying out here today, um, there's a new book out that Chuck Sable and I have, which is called Fixing the Climate. It's actually about how firms and governments, when there's a strong motivation to do something but nobody knows what to do, how they deal with those uncertainties, how they run experiments, and how they keep the uncertainties from being paralyzing. And they learn which technology work and don't work. That's why we've done made such incredible progress in protecting the ozone layer. That's why we're making progress on climate in a reasonable way that's connected to real goals. And then there's a bunch of us who uh, had a piece in Foreign Affairs a couple months ago that apply that logic to global diplomacy that, if I can say bluntly, de-emphasizes the role of the diplomacy and emphasizes the role of these smaller groups of highly motivated actors working on particular pollutants in particular sectors, experimenting, changing facts on the ground. And when you change facts on the ground, you also change the politics. You take a problem that seems just dauntingly difficult politically, and you turn it into a problem that's a whole lot easier because you have incentive compatibility. You have technologies that are better, um, where it's, it, you don't have to swim against such a hard tide in order to make progress. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic. You both just covered so much ground that I'd love to dive into. But we're under 10 minutes, and I want to leave some time for audience questions. But I, I just did want to 
touch on a couple of the points that you raised uh, that were just fantastic. To your to your point about we have made progress when it doesn't seem as such. You know, I'm old enough to remember when um, uh, Waxman and Markey proposed legislation in the mid aughts uh, to reduce uh, uh, emissions through a cap and trade scheme that narrowly passed the House of Representatives, wasn't even brought up for a vote in the Senate. Originally, that bill called for a 17% reduction below 2005 levels by 2020. It was never enacted, and yet we have blown through that because of market forces, innovation, um, natural gas, displacing more carbon-intense sources of fuel, the increased deployment of renewables. So it's just an example that I think when we gauge success or progress based on politics, it sometimes colors you know, the landscape. To your point on globalization, I think it's spot on. And I do think that it's not just unique to the United States. We're dealing with this everywhere. Uh, I found it particularly rich that Macron came to Washington, DC, and lambasted the US for passing the Inflation Reduction Act, I noted that um, Macron only uh, disfavors subsidies when they don't come from the subsidy region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling protectionism. Um, <laughs> I, I'm shocked because you, there's no area in politics where you ever see hypocrisy. Right. Surprise! Uh, <laughs> you know, but but the one very quick question uh, I want to ask you both before we dive into audience questions is that you know, in every other energy transition that humanity has ever faced, technology came about and then policy evolved to deal with the introduction of this new technology. Right. This is the first energy transition that we are confronting where policy is driving the transition, which I think leads to a lot of the obstacles that you identified. Uh, and David, may color how you see some of the winners and losers. How, how different is it that this is a policy-driven energy transition that we are now living through? I'll say briefly, I think there's no question there's a role of policy here. And you know, it's, it's not like the you know, horse industry got together in 1900 and said, what should we do, be doing about the cars and so on. But um, I think actually um, the role of policy in driving this has been overstated. One of the roles of policy here is to send credible signals to firms that if they don't do something about this, that there could be roadkill in the revolution. And what I'm seeing actually on the ground is a whole lot of experimentation that's motivated partly by policy and partly by the, the recognition of the direction of travel. And then once you change facts on the ground, then the, poli the, the role of policy backing and filling in all of this, I think, is, is still greater than we expect. Um, but there's no question there's a big role for policy. You look at it here in California with regard or renewables mandates and so on. It is a reminder to policymakers that we have to be able to do much better what Buzz Thompson said in the previous panel is so hard to do, which is to be adaptive in light of new information. Well, we agree. The, the horse and buggy industry did not create the automotive industry. And uh, it, it, since we're pitching books, I, I should have put a picture of my book up as well. Uh, the publish or perish, that's the yeah, Or publicize or perish, right? They're, they're even better. <laughs> the, the cloud revolution. There's a few chapters on energy, but it's about, it's about the technology uh, pivot that the world's, in fact, I have uh, 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 the famous S-curves in the, in, the, in the book, of course. Uh, look, the, the problem is, the, what I was trying to illustrate, I can summarize with one, one example, is that uh, we aren't undergoing a transition that will be policy-driven, and I don't believe it will happen because it requires fundamentally different technologies than exist today. And I'm, some of you may have followed Bill Gates' migration on these issues. He's been talking less about the last couple of years, but 
started about five years ago. He gave a very long interview in Atlantic about technology and, and uh, the energy transition. And so I'm, and I think it's in two places in Microsoft's online climate uh, policy, the statement that the technologies needed don't exist today. Not that we need it, we have market failure, that we need to subsidize more, or we have to you know, hug and get along better. I'm on the same page on globalization. I'm a huge trade fan, people in the conservative community that have abandoned free trade, which is a little embarrassing since uh, if the Chinese want to burn coal to make solar modules, okay. And by the way, that's why they're cheap there, because it's a thousand times more energy to make a pound of silicon than a pound of steel. So all the solar modules are manufactured on the part of the China grid that has very cheap coal. And they didn't innovate. We innovated them. They decided to subsidize and put them on cheap coal grids to the benefit of you know, all of us in the sense of buying them. But they're, coal, they're, they're produced with coal. Uh, solar modules is solidified coal. And uh, it eventually pays back its carbon debt, but it takes, it takes a, you know, a little while. The policies that are being implemented and, and, and emulated by the automakers, so we have $800 billion of global capex in electric vehicles and, elect and battery factories. Uh, we, we know for a fact that each of those factories, battery factories, requires roughly at today's prices, $2 billion a year input minerals. Uh, we, we, this is just, this is what uh, microeconomists do. You sort of, okay, what's the aggregate demand on those minerals? Is anybody making them? Will the prices go up? The, the, the supply isn't there. Uh, this will, the experiment will play out. I'd be willing to take the bet that it'll take about two years, maybe three. It's not a long way in the future. One of the biggest misallocations of capital in the industrial markets in modern history, probably the biggest misallocation of capital. In the auto industry, it will become obvious and it will have consequences in capital markets and auto, auto companies' valuations and all the rest of this uh, because the materials don't exist and they can't be waived into existence by trading subsidies, mandates, because governments can't, uh, let me put it this differently, the Fed can create interest rates, it can't create copper. Somebody, uh, just a variant on the Fed can print money, it can't print oil. That's the nature of the beast we're in that I think is being ignored. Uh, we're, we're down to about two and a half minutes, but I do want to take, uh, there's all kinds of hands, so we'll go very quick, rapid fire, starting with Robert quick in the front row here. I'm a, I consider myself a environmentalist. First of all, I'm blown away. Wow. Wow, that was a great talk. But I got a question for you, Neil. Uh, I have solar. I put it in two, year, two and a half years ago. I've kept uh, great, great uh, numbers on it. And when we had wildfires, uh, I had almost zero output for one day and pretty, pretty close to zero output for five days. I'm an engineer and I said, wow, we, we ought to develop a grid with that, uh, a worst case scenario. But what I hear is all we're concerned about is solar is one day, the duck curve. Is that, is that, does anybody say, hey, we got to have one to two weeks of uh, uh, nuclear or some base uh, yeah. energy? Yeah, I mean, sure. that's been, I mean, that's been the challenge that we've been dealing with is as we make this transition and uh, economic and policy pressure is being put on traditional yep. forms of this base load power, um, we're getting to that point. And without some kind of dramatic breakthrough in storage or a huge build out in transmission to where you can bring sources of power from remote locations to where the demand is, um, it's going to continue to be uh, a challenge. 
dollars. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah it, it costs money. But the state of the art in this modeling is you run several decades with real um, meteorological conditions, and then you look at these probabilities, these extreme events. Um, I was very heavily involved in the net zero study from SDG&E. If you go to their website, find sdge.com slash net zero. And what keeps the lights on in those models is clean, firm power. In our case, it's hydrogen or it's imports of, of uh, hydro from the Pacific Northwest, which is tailing off. But you've got to have some kind of a backstop source. Right now, the California grid uses natural gas for that, and there's you know, a big debate about the future of, of that question. But that, that's what keeps reliability up. Get some hands in the back. Terry, is it all right if we go over a little bit? These guys are hawking books, no? Yeah, I got to sell some books. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Two more questions. All right, all right. we got one, uh, uh, a hand right here and a hand in the back. Uh, there's a lot of angst in national security circles about uh, the inability of our electrical grid to withstand a particular cyber attack. Uh, is that true? Uh, how do we get to a more resistant electrical grid? Is it? Uh, can you do it through markets, or does it have to be a mandate? And number three, how much does that uh, infrastructure <laughs> upgrade overlap with the infrastructure upgrade that you would make for climate change goals? I'll take a quick run at all three of those. So uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, there's no question as as innovation enables us to uh, decarbonize, it also introduces this new risk of both physical and cyber threats to the grid. And as we're seeing in Ukraine, um, it is definitely a source of vulnerability and something that we have to be cognizant of. But we have to properly weigh the costs of what the hardening of the grid would entail versus the probability threshold of an event occurring versus what the consequences of such an event would be. Um, I could go on about this for days, but one of the things that FERC is looking at that I'm very supportive of is cyber incentives of finding ways, not with mandates through NERC um, or, 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 or uh, penalties, uh, but through incentivizing investments in the technology needed to, uh, to protect the grid. I think one last question in the back. Um, uh, a note of optimism. Uh, when the slides were shown about the shortage of metals and whatnot, I couldn't help but think we're talking about last century technologies. And I think there are new technologies in the offing that are. may uh, bring some solution. Um, I've read about superconducting nanotubes, car based on carbon no less, and there's no shortage of carbon. Also, those slides reminded me so much of the th thing that I heard so much about when I was young, Malthusian doom. <laughs> and in each case, feeding the world, Dorth wheat, um, the in uh, the uh, antibiotic, antibiotics losing their efficacy. Right. Well, then CRISPR technologies came along. Going forward, maybe there will be other technologies that only now are in the labs. So I, my question to you is, do you have uh, any information or insight into new technologies that are coming? Superconducting nanotech tubes come to mind, and um, doggone, I forgot the other one. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll yeah. suggest you come up after we stop. I got, I got, ten, I got a 10 answer. second answer. You buy my book, it's in there. Uh, <laughs> Mark, I, I, I mean, that. You're right, but it, the timelines are long. That's the problem. All They're right, not. let's take a uh, 10 minute break and be right back. <laughs>